Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. After years making tough decisions every day, one of the hardest a president faces is what to do next. George W. Bush pursued his inner Rembrandt, His oddly arresting portraits of Russian President Vladimir Putin, the Dalai Lama, and his father, former President George H.W. Bush, have been exhibited across the country, a self-portrait, the only hint of narcissism. Barack Obama also chose a creative path in his own more attention-grabbing style. He wrote a lengthy memoir and recently launched a podcast with Bruce Springsteen. Sadly, the two sages failed to answer the burning question, how the red cap wedged into the Levi's on the famous Born in the USA album cover came to be appropriated by Trump fans. Trump himself is less inclined to let his legacy percolate while he pursues a new hobby. This week, he reasserted control of the Republican Party, hinting he could become only the second president after Grover Cleveland to make the biggest comeback of all, a return to the White House. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can Republicans complete the pivot to make theirs the party of the working class? Donald Trump emerged from Perda at the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, meeting of party activists. Despite leading Republicans to a series of defeats, Trump's control of the party remains near complete. In his speech, he paid tribute to Rush Limbaugh, who pioneered the brand of anti-elitism that now defines the party. Where does cleaving to culture leave Republicans? In this episode, we'll look back on Limbaugh's legacy and hear from Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, who says moderate Republicans can still prevail. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, let's start with you. What's going on in New York? By which I mean, what is going on in New York? Well, on the home front, it's been a little warmer, so I've been able to take my son on bike rides along the river, which is very nice. And then there's this political scandal unfolding with Governor Cuomo here. He's facing allegations of sexual harassment, which he's denied, and it's given Mayor de Blasio in New York City the opportunity to be marginally more likable. But it's kind of like watching two people compete to be the worst members of a soccer team. And John, how about you? What's going on in your corner of the state? Uh, I've been as transfixed by the Cuomo scandal as anyone else has. And I have to say, for two such successful politicians, Cuomo and de Blasio have an unbelievable ability to make people hate them. They have no sort of personal appeal at all. 
I actually think that Cuomo does have some personal appeal. I mean, you absolutely saw that in the spring, right? It's just that he, that the more you know about him, the less likable he becomes, both in style and substance. But his political style is to bully and intimidate and berate. So he does come off as reassuring on TV from time to time. But everybody in Albany, it seems to me, just has their knives out for him. I trust it that both of you have read American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic by Andrew Cuomo, which was published in October. Is lesson number one, whenever you go on TV, make sure you're interviewed by your brother? (laughs) I have excerpts from it framed around my home just as the daily inspiration. Yeah, words to live by. I'm deeply suspicious of the whole leadership publishing industry. I mean, do you remember after Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York and then failed to become the Republican nominee for president, he had a whole gig where he would go on tour talking about leadership. I think anybody who's, who basically makes a living talking about leadership is inherently suspect, but that perhaps that's my, my prejudice as an anonymous scribe. I mean, it's kind of like me launching a cooking show. I could, but... A quiz book, maybe. Even better. Well, one person who's exceptionally skilled at turning failures into bestsellers about success is Donald Trump, who reappeared at CPAC, the Conservative Conference in Orlando this week. Idris Kaloun is The Economist's Washington correspondent. When Donald Trump took the stage at CPAC, he was greeted with adulation. At one point during his 90-minute speech, the crowd broke out in a cheers of, we love you, that continued for, for several seconds. It seemed very much like the triumphal return of someone who's very much in charge of the Republican Party. For a long time, CPAC had been this event that epitomized the far right of the party. And there was still a distinction between that and the establishment wing embodied by George H.W. Bush and George Bush and John McCain and Mitt Romney. And now it seems like they do epitomize the party itself. And that faction of the party, I think, is still very much ascendant. And the feeling that some people had that after Trump's loss and after the Capitol riots and impeachment that the Republican Party would distance itself from Trumpism, I think, at this point, looks to be completely wrong. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because you'll remember just after the election, and as you say, particularly after the riots at the Capitol, there was this sense that perhaps there was an opening here for the Republican Party to rid itself of Trumpism if it wanted to do so. And of course, there's the opportunity to impeach the president, which Republican senators passed up on. That very brief window of opportunity has closed really fast, hasn't it? Which sort of makes me conclude that those people in the Republican Party who do want to move on from Trumpism are really in a minority. Yeah, I totally agree. I spoke to Representative Jim Jordan this week, who's one of the president's staunchest defenders in Congress. And He said that Trump is still the leader of the conservative movement and still the leader of the Republican Party, and that he hopes that come January 21st, 2025, that he's the president of the United States again. And I don't think that he speaks for a minority of Republicans. There's no autopsy from the 2020 loss, even though the Republicans now have ceded control of the entire federal government to the Democrats. And it doesn't look like there will be. There is no real introspection about whether Trumpism was a a winning or losing strategy or whether there needs to be a rethink, Um, in part because there was just enough, you know, there was enough victories on the electoral front for them to to justify it, right? You know, yes, Trump lost the popular vote by several million votes, but if you look at the Electoral College, he was really only 50,000 votes off in the right places. And they gained seats in the House, they gained state legislatures, you know, it wasn't the scathing rebuke that, uh, that might have prompted something of a larger rethink. 
Charlotte, if you go back to 2016, when Democrats lost the presidency, there was a lot of soul searching within the party. There was a big effort to try and think about how the party had in particular alienated white working class voters in the Midwest, those voters that had proved so costly in 2016. And that went on for a good long time. It's so striking that after the Republican Party lost the presidential election and also lost control of the Senate, there seems to be a total absence of that kind of inquiry or introspection in the party. What what do you make of that? Well, I think it's fair to say that Mitt Romney never captured the soul and enthusiasm of Republicans in the same way that Donald Trump did. And that I understand why to many of Trump's supporters and many within the group that was gathered at CPAC, it feels premature to move beyond Trump. Alienating Trump at this point still does present real political risks to a lot of the people who hope to be Trump's successors. Just quickly on Jim Jordan, though, I mean, Jim Jordan is interesting for a number of reasons, the congressman from Ohio. He was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Donald Trump. And as a frame of reference, it's America's highest civilian honor. Obama had given it to Sandra Day O'Connor, a Republican-appointed justice of the Supreme Court, Desmond Tutu of South Africa, Maya Angelou, who's one of America's great poets of the 20th century, Jim Jordan's main accomplishment is defending Donald Trump. And that, I think it would be strange to expect this generation of Republicans having aligned themselves so closely with Trump to all of a sudden leave him behind. It's not really in their political interest to do so, frankly. I think that's one reason why Trumpism will be so hard to dislodge, that under you know a Kasich administration, even a Cruz administration, Jordan would have been just one of a couple of hundred solid conservative votes in the House. But he saw an opportunity and he took it. And I think there are a lot of people for who that's true. A lot of people who work in the Trump White House who would not have worked in a more functional administration, people saw a shot of power and they're not going away. I think it's also worth pointing out that for the Republican Party, Trump is both a help and a real threat. So if there was some broad movement to move past Trump, I think that they realized that Donald Trump would not take that sitting down. And it was notable that at CPAC, he asked Republicans to donate to him, not to the Republican Party, but to him. He said, quote, there's only one way to contribute to our efforts to elect America first Republican conservatives and make America great again. And that's through the Save America PAC and DonaldJTrump.com. So if let's say that the Republican National Committee said, this is a new day, we're starting over. I think there's a real risk that a lot of money would just go past the RNC straight to Trump. And indeed, it may do that already. But it's not an empty threat. This is one that's very much on the table. Yeah, that's the irony of the situation that Republicans find themselves in, particularly people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. I've I've said this before, but it bears repeating. They are his staunchest defenders, but nobody wants him gone more than they do. They don't want him to nurse a sort of tale of grievance and stolen election back to the 2024 nomination. They want to be the 2024 nominee, but they can't be seen to be pushing him out of the way. So what they are trying to do, I think what Republicans of all stripes are trying to do, are express personal fealty in public and then behind the scenes just hope that some combination of legal troubles, maybe health troubles, and sort of sheer laziness keeps Trump from running again and lets them slide seamlessly into the position of the Trumpist champion. 
Jim Jordan's example is interesting as well, because before Donald Trump came along, he was very much associated with the House Freedom Caucus, the part of the Republican Party that was in favour of cutting taxes, cutting government spending as much as possible. That agenda just isn't very popular in America. And it's particularly not popular with the kinds of working class voters, in particular white working class voters, that the Republican Party is increasingly reliant on. So the Republican Party's sort of institutional political philosophy, if that's not too grand a term, and its electoral strategy had become totally out of whack with each other. And then along comes Donald Trump and creates a new political philosophy. I mean, I'm in the camp of people who believe that Trumpism is mostly about Donald Trump's personality and political style. But nevertheless, there is this set of America first ideas. And if those America first ideas are now the ideas of the Republican establishment, indeed, then nobody's going to out America first Donald Trump. I mean, the idea that Hawley or anyone else can come along and be more America first than Donald Trump, that just seems really unlikely to me. That's a good point. I do think that Donald Trump's real talent still lies in being able to tap into some sort of deep frustration within the American people rather than offer a coherent set of policies to deal with that frustration. And that the platform, if you can even call it that, is sufficiently muddy that you could see some Republican successors change it a bit, even while keeping the total headline the same of Make America Great and so forth. And so I think that will be really interesting to see in the next few years whether the Republican philosophy on policy evolves. But just going back to this question of Republicans who want him on the stage or off, It will be really interesting to keep an eye on Florida because Ron DeSantis, the governor there, he came in second in the straw poll in which Trump's name was included. And he was first in the one that assumed that Trump didn't win in 2024. And he is obviously a very close Trump ally, but he has Trump, you know, sitting right over his shoulder, literally and and figuratively. Trump's in Florida. His children are in Florida. Uh, Ivanka Trump might run for something, you know, I don't think she's going to run for president in 2024, but um, she's certainly a, a force on the Florida scene. So I think it'll be fascinating to see how DeSantis navigates this, where he wants to remain allied with the Trumps while furthering his own political ambition. One of the things I find interesting about Ron DeSantis is like lots of frontline Republican politicians at the moment, he plays the part of an anti-elitist because that's become so core to what Republican Party politics is about, while himself being a graduate of Yale and Harvard Law School. We'll look back on the origins of that anti-elitism in the Republican Party in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, if you don't already subscribe to The Economist, you're missing out. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. In the US pages this week, we investigate evangelical politics and the historical links between African-American radicals and Chinese communism. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. I want to pay my love and respect to the great Rush Limbaugh. When Donald Trump re-emerged in Orlando this week, he paid tribute to a pioneer, the man who did more than anyone before him to transform the tenor of American conservatism. Who is watching closely and smiling down on us. He's watching and he's loving it. His nationally syndicated show, launched in 1988, was the first to exploit a change in broadcasting rules. 
the Reagan administration had ended the Fairness Doctrine, which kept Americans on a balanced media diet. Welcome to the Rush Limbaugh program, a program exclusively designed for rich conservatives and right-minded Republicans and those who want to be either or both. For listeners raised on blandness, Limbaugh offered a blood-pressure-busting feast of supersized opinions. The views expressed by the host on this show are not necessarily those of the staff, management, nor sponsors of this station, but they ought to be. Within three years, he had the cultural heft to merit a profile on CBS's 60 Minutes. With the torso as big as his voice, this 300-pounder from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, has fashioned a blend of political satire and commentary into the most successful radio talk show in the country. His show rarely had guests, so he had more time to expand on the ills of modern America, most of which were the fault of liberals and the left. Liberalism, as he put it, is a scourge. It destroys the human spirit. It destroys prosperity. This simple format inspired scores of imitators, Daring to say out loud what so many thought, and baiting the left, became the house style of Trump's Republican Party. Thank you so much. As with Trump, his followers were cultic, even though, or perhaps because, the things he said could be repellent. Feminists, gays, prominent people of colour, all bore the brunt of Limbaugh's insults. We're in for a real battle. By the time Barack Obama was president in 2009, Limbaugh himself was the keynote speaker at CPAC. The country we were all born into and reared and grown into. And it's under assault, it's always under assault. But it's never been under assault like this from within. He had helped fan the rumours that Obama was not an American citizen, the conspiracy theory that sparked Trump's pivot into politics. Thank you all very much. It's been great. I can't help but feel that I'm letting everybody down with this. But the upshot is that I have been diagnosed with advanced lung cancer. Unassailable for more than three decades, Rush Limbaugh succumbed to cancer in February. Skinny and bearded, he continued broadcasting right up until his final weeks. And I wish I didn't have to tell you this. And I thought about not telling anybody. I thought about trying to do this without anybody knowing, because I don't like making things about me. By then, he was a fixture of the Republican establishment. Like many conservatives, Limbaugh had been skeptical of Trump's ideological credentials at the start of his presidential run. But they soon found common cause in goading liberal elites. It was a phenomenally successful media strategy. It proved less convincing as a governing philosophy. Rush Limbaugh, thank you for your decades of tireless devotion to our country. But President Trump made time in his last State of the Union address to repay his debt to the man who made shock jocks mainstream. And Rush, in recognition of all that you have done for our nation, the millions of people a day that you speak to and that you inspire, and all of the incredible work that you have done for charity, I am proud to announce tonight that you will be receiving our country's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. (laughs) 
John, you wrote a piece about Limbaugh in last week's Economist. Can you explain the appeal of his rants? First of all, he was entertaining, right? Talking for three hours by yourself is really hard to do. And he did it in a way that got millions of people to tune in. A lot of people on the right thought that he was funny, although, you know, I think his sense of humor is more more bullying than than actually funny. His appeal was really sort of what Trump's appeal was, that he said exactly what he wanted to say. And it may have seemed boorish to some. It certainly seemed mean to me a lot of the time. He was particularly rude to African-Americans, to women, to gay people. But a lot of people interpreted that as not being cowed by political correctness. I used to listen to Rush Limbaugh when I was based in the Midwest and I was driving along across the Midwest and had long car rides. And I was struck by two things. One is the completely parallel news cycle that you hear on Rush Limbaugh's show versus what you might hear if you were listening to NPR as a counterpoint, as an extreme counterpoint. It wasn't that they were commenting in a different way on the same set of news. It was an entirely different set of news. On Rush Limbaugh, you might have an hour and a half talking about the Black Panthers, for instance. But the other thing I was most struck by is the way that he had a really joyful manner of saying things that were essentially hateful. And there's something about that connection between a uh, a radio host, and it's often people are listening to him in his car. It's a very intimate relationship when you hear someone talking for that long, and, and often you're listening to them alone. And I think that he created that personal connection and felt like he had a joyful way of tapping into things that people maybe didn't want to say out loud. But then he became so popular that people did start saying it out loud, right? And I remember visiting um, Tea Party rallies, et cetera, where people would quote Rush Limbaugh back to each other. And so he really did play an enormous role within this creation of Republican culture. And Donald Trump rightly saw him as an ally. Yeah, and neither of them had much interest in policy at all, right? It was all stoking cultural grievances. This is why you've seen this week Republicans pay so much attention to Dr. Seuss. The Dr. Seuss estate decided to stop publishing six books, six of 39 books that used outdated racial imagery. And the story was Dr. Seuss was canceled. Well, he wasn't canceled at all. Or Hasbro decided to start selling just Potato Head instead of Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head with all the same accoutrements, like the actual physical play of Potato Head with children isn't going to change. Potatoes don't have genitals. There's no design change. But it turned into this outsized cultural grievance. And that's sort of what the Republican Party seems to be anchored around now, is making liberals angry and stoking the sense that they are being oppressed somehow. Yeah, it's a much bigger tent strategy in some ways, right? I mean, if you make abortion a central part of your party platform in an explicit way, and you're talking about it a lot at CPAC, then there's some people within the Republican tent who might take issue with that. But if you make your, your platform broadly just about cancel culture, there's so much that you can fit under that. I mean, abortion could be but one component. And then you have this broader sense that the identity of Americans is somehow being wiped out. And so I think in one sense, it's shrewd to emphasize cancel culture, because it's just so broad, you can fit anything into it. But on the other hand, can you build an entire party platform around it? I don't know, it seems a little flimsy. 
Well, you can't build a governing platform around it, right? You can't. There's no governing. There's no policy that comes out of that. And it's especially when true. When was politics ever about governing, Desmond? <laughs> I think that's especially true if you define cancel culture, as Republicans seem to, as any change of which I disapprove or any consequences for speech at all. I mean, Mike Pompeo tweeted the other day that people tried to cancel him because they called him the worst secretary of state in history. That's not cancellation. That's criticism. I attended CPAC a bunch of times as a reporter. And then, I mean, this is like 10 years ago, the greatest hits were guns, abortion and tax cuts. And it was striking watching CPAC online this week, the degree to which that seems to have been replaced with cancel culture, stuff about Mr. Potato Head, etc. I mean, on one level, it seems to me like America's gone from arguing about whether its democracy is in real peril to arguing about Dr. Zeus. And that feels like tremendous progress. On the other hand, it's kind of wild the way that the Republican Party seems to have been downplaying many of its past greatest hits and has kind of replaced them with this ragtag of kind of anti-elitist grievance, which is often being pushed by Ivy League educated politicians. It's it's quite a strange mix. Yeah, but the guns and the abortion fights, those have largely been won, right? Abortion is still legal, but states are figuring out ways to restrict it out of existence. The interpretation of the Second Amendment is now the one that has been pushed by the NRA for years, which is essentially unfettered personal gun ownership. The tax question, I think, is where a lot of the sort of interesting stuff is happening on the Republican Party. You have Republicans, sort of substantive, thoughtful Republicans like Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio, who are trying to figure out a way to make the promise to be the working class party about something more than sort of cultural sops and hating the libs. So you have Hawley really thinking about how to raise people's wages. You have Mitt Romney proposing a child tax credit that to me is an outstanding idea would reduce child poverty by about a third. And so I think that fight over tax policy and the role of government in people's lives when it comes to wages, it's not as sexy or as soundbiteable or as cheer raising as sort of fights over cancel culture are. But that I think is where a lot of the intellectual ferment on the right is happening. All right, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to hear what Maryland's governor, Larry Hogan, thinks of his party's obsession with class and culture. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Larry Hogan has a decent claim to being the most popular Republican in America. The governor of Maryland gets approval ratings in the 70s in a solidly democratic state by preaching bipartisanship. He's an outlier, for sure, but he has more experience than most in governing at the sharp end, having responded decisively to the COVID pandemic last year. This is the account he recently gave our Washington bureau chief, James Astell, of the events of the 6th of January, when Trump supporters stormed the Capitol. Well, I was in the middle of a Zoom like this with the ambassador from Japan. My chief of staff says, hey, they just attacked the Capitol. And I, 
excuse myself and immediately called a security team together. Uh, I made decisions, call up the entire riot train, uh, state police force, two or 300 folks, send them to DC. We had a call from the mayor of DC asking for help, immediately provided the help. Were you getting calls from inside the Capitol as well? Yeah, right. So as I'm making these decisions, they say Steny Hoyer is on the phone, uh, the majority leader of the house. He's he's from Maryland. And, you know, we obviously know each other, have a relationship. And I take the call and it's Hoyer calling on his cell phone. He's in a room with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. And he says, Governor, we need your help. They've taken over the Capitol. I said, well, I was aware we were on top of it. Already talked to the D.C. mayor. He said, Capitol police are overwhelmed. We need your help. It was panicked. (laughs) There were leaders that he was yelling across the room. You know, you could hear him take the phone away and say, Nancy, hey, Chuck, you know, I got Hogan on the phone. He says he's sending Maryland State Police. I was like, we have the National Guard called up and ready, but we the mayor of D.C. can't authorize the guard. I have to wait for the Department of Defense. And he's saying Chuck Schumer says you have authorization. And I said, Steny, I don't have authorization. We keep calling. They've denied us multiple times. The events of the 6th of January made Governor Hogan more convinced than ever that moderates can and should regain control of the Republican Party from the Trumpist wing. In four years, they lost the presidency, the House of Representatives, the U.S. Senate, governor's seats, state legislative bodies. And we've never had a worse four years as a party. I'm of the maybe currently smaller group of folks that say we got to move beyond the kind of cult following of Donald Trump to win over swing voters and independents, uh, suburban women, and we'd have to do better among minorities. Those are all the things that I've done in two elections in one of the bluest states in America. I ran about 45 points ahead of Donald Trump in the state of Maryland, where I won by 15. He lost by 30 two times. After all, parties are formed to try to win elections, and we're not doing it very well. You're a Republican who wins in a blue state. What is the secret source? How do you do that? The vast majority of people are totally turned off by our political process. They don't identify with far left Democrats or far right Republicans. They fall somewhere in the middle. You know, I have a 75 percent approval rating among Republicans and Democrats and independents and black voters and white voters and women and men and young people and old people. The common thread is they really do want their elected leaders in both parties to simply tell them the truth, be a straight shooter, and to be willing to work with the other side, to focus on fixing problems. I don't think the final chapter on Trump has been written. I don't think he's going to ride off into the sunset and quietly go away. But I, I don't I don't think uh, he's going to have any ability to run for office again. I don't think he wants to run for office again. I think he's going to be faced with the continuing decline of support and public opinion. I think he's got he faces legal problems and financial problems and tax problems. I think he's going to be focused on other things. I mean, this is uh, that's not that's not coming through on Fox, may I say? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I like to channel surf. I have to read The Economist to find out what the real story is about what's going on. Well, we'll we'll obviously we'll obviously (laughs) obviously use that bit for the podcast. (laughs) Charlotte, listening to that interview, I'd really like to believe that Larry Hogan's diagnosis of what's going on in the Republican Party is correct. But somehow I fear it may not be. What about you? I share both your hopes and fears, John Bruno. But I think that in some ways he is right and Josh Hawley and 
Ted Cruz are right, because we're talking about such a small number of votes at the moment. I think, as Idris said, the Trump campaign did really well, actually, not in the, not in the popular vote, but in the Electoral College. Trump performed very well. So I think that you can look at the results of 2020, and it's almost a Rorschach test where you can look at them and say, you know what, actually, Trump did pretty well. And if we double down on this strategy, but have the party led by a slightly less polarizing figure than Trump himself, we can succeed. And then another Republican look at it can look at those results and say, you know, we're really going in the wrong direction and we need to make a change. So I can see how you look at the data from 2020 and come to those two conclusions. I think that one is the conclusion that I wish Republicans would come to, um, which is Larry Hogan's, but I'm not sure he carries the weight of the party at the moment. Yeah, I agree. I, I like Larry Hogan a lot. In 2018, when he was running for re-election and I had Idris's job, I followed him around for a day. I saw him in Baltimore. I saw him on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. He's a great politician, good guy. I would happily vote for him. I also think he is probably right about Trump not running again and not really wanting to run again. I think that running for president takes effort and money, whereas just telling people to give you money to fight the liberals brings in money, and Trump would always rather bring in money than spend money. And I think Hogan has made a good bet, right? He's made a good position for himself. He is never going to be a Trumpist. He has decided to step up and sort of take friendly fire as the anti-Trump face. I think maybe if Republicans lose in 2024, they'd be ready to make that turn in 2028, but it feels a little bit soon now. I just don't know who his constituency is among Republicans. I mean, I think if the three of us are sitting around cheering for Larry Hogan, it's a sign that he's doomed in a Republican primary. <laughs> that sounds right. I think that's entirely right. He's correct, though, about the rise in the number of independents. I was struck by a Gallup poll that came out a couple of days ago showing that half of American voters now consider themselves to be independents. That's an all-time high since Gallup started polling. So when you look at that, it makes you think, well, perhaps American politics is more fluid than we typically think. I think you've just sent out the bat signal to our colleague, Elliot Morris, who will tell you that just because someone proclaims themselves to be an independent doesn't mean that they're politically independent or their vote is fluid. So most independents are partisans. They're just choosing to reject a label. And to your point, 90% of people vote the way they voted in the previous election, right? There's an incredibly little switching of parties. And Charlotte's point earlier about 2020 and the results of the Republicans being Rorschach test, we've got more and more data now about what happened in the election, more and more granular data. And it's one of the things that is pretty striking is the increase in the share of the Hispanic votes that Donald Trump received in 2020. I mean, we knew that at the time because of the results in Texas, but there really was quite a significant bump that Republicans got in 2020 from Hispanic voters. So there again, the results are good enough that if you're in the America first wing of the party, you can say, well, those people who say that we have to detoxify and and find a way to appeal to a more diverse America, don't they realize that we did really well in 2020? We don't need to change at all. You know, the country is coming to us and the story that the Democrats tell about the rising diverse electorates being democratic just isn't true. Um, so it just doesn't seem to me that the incentives for the Republican Party to change have been absorbed and internalized by the Republican Party. Nevertheless, Charlotte, there is an effort to try and reinvent the party's platform to stop being the party of business and to be the party of the working man, the working class Republican Party. What do you think the chances are of that effort being successful? 
I think it could be successful. I mean, already, if you look at who's voting for whom, there's a lot of support among people with lower incomes for the Republican Party. But I think over the next four years, it will be important to see whether, as I alluded to earlier, whether Josh Hawley and others can add a bit more meat to the Republican Party platform. And John Shields, who's our producer, shared this great anecdote that I think is worth repeating, which is when George H.W. Bush was campaigning, he was listing all of his accomplishments in Ohio. He was talking about how he had gone to Yale, he had served in the Second World War, he had been a successful oil man and a Chinese ambassador, a director of the CIA, just a very long list of accomplishments. And James Rhodes, who had been Ohio's governor, took out his wallet and slapped it on the table and said, none of that matters. If you put something in here, people will vote for you. And if you take money out of it, people will vote for the other guy. And then he went on to tell reporters that George Bush is the only guy he knows who gets out of the shower to take a piss, to quote him exactly. But I think that that anecdote is informative in that if Republicans can show that they are the party who will help bring more cash to the ordinary American, I think they do have a chance of real long-term success. I'm not sure that they are that party at the moment, but maybe they'll evolve and become it. Yeah, I'd be leery of that if I were Democrats. I think a platform of tax cuts and minimum wage increases is a good way to put more money in the pockets of a lot of Americans. I thought you were going to say a platform of pocketbook issues and pissing in the shower, which is a bit a, a twofer. The pocketbook issues appealing to voters and also the kind of cultural grievance against against elites who might step out of the shower, that might be quite a successful combination for the Republican Party. I feel like this podcast is a reminder that talking for three hours uninterrupted is just <laughs> damn hard. All right. Thank you, guys. Before you go, I have a quiz for you. Mr. Potato Head made his first appearance in The Economist in 2006. The paper... This may have been a story written by Charlotte, actually. The paper reported from Idaho, where the top heavy tuber had been recruited to trumpet the health-giving policies of the state's iconic crop. What fad did the Idaho Potato Commission blame for falling sales? Uh, Atkins. Yeah, carb-phobic diets. Charlotte got that first. A point to you. America's passion for potatoes has cooled since the 1990s. On a potato consumption per capita basis, America doesn't even make the top 10, sadly. The world leader in that category is Belarus. Who was America's founding foodie, credited with introducing the young country to French fries? Uh, Thomas Jefferson, I, because French Charlotte, fries, of course. that's two out of two for you this time. <laughs> I feel compelled to speak up. It was Thomas Jefferson's African-American cook, whose name I can't remember right now, but who I was reading about this weekend. You're absolutely right. I uh, think you get such a show off, uh, such a show even off. in defeat. <laughs> um, I think Charlotte gets a point for saying Jefferson. Fasman also gets a point, though. So that's two one to Charlotte. Jefferson got a taste for French fries during his time as America's first envoy in Paris, where his slave James Hemming trained as a chef. Recipes that Hemming brought back to America included macaroni cheese and vanilla ice cream. French fries didn't really take off in America, though, until American soldiers sent to Europe during World War I came across them in Belgium, which is the chip's spiritual home. Though, of course, you have to have them with mayonnaise rather than ketchup. That is an abomination. It makes me angry every time I hear that. Ugh. <laughs> you have irrational prejudices against mayo and avocados. Both are completely rational. Next time you come around to dinner at my house, I'm going to present you with an avocado mayonnaise and see what you make of it. Uh, uh. <laughs> 
I've had gazpacho. Someone made a, a gazpacho recipe that had mayonnaise in it, John Fasman. What? And I... um, <laughs> it was actually delicious. It was surprisingly delicious. And the person whose mother makes it listens to this show. So I've never seen Fasman, who's a mild mannered man, look so angry before. <laughs> I resign in protest. <laughs> it was really good. If any of our Belgian listeners want to email some ways to eat mayonnaise that John Fasman might find acceptable, then please email radio at economist.com with that or with any other thoughts about the show this week. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Bye. Thanks also to John Shields and Nicholas Rofast for producing the podcast. If you like it, please let everyone know and leave us a rating and a review. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.